Ray Pritchard once recounted, have you ever heard of the American prayer? It goes something like this, Lord, give me patience, and I want it right now. Patience is not a virtue our society seems to favor. We live in a world of frozen dinners, instant coffee, powdered orange juice, instant digital cameras, freeway express lanes, cell phones, and instant messaging apps. Our motto is, give it to me quick or forget about it. Few of us like to wait. It reminds us we're out of control. We don't like waiting in traffic, in line at the supermarket, or at the airport, or when our computers don't work fast enough. Dr. Larry Ducey, a Dallas internist, coined a term that describes this problem. People who hate to wait suffer from what he calls hurry sickness, which he defines as an increased sensitivity to the passage of time. He believes that people suffering from hurry sickness die before their time. The good doctor offers the following experiment. You'll need another person to help you with this. Give your friend a watch with a second hand. Sit down. Have your friend blindfold you. While blindfolded, try to guess how long a minute is. Dr. Ducey says to a person suffering from hurry sickness, a minute lasts 15 seconds or less. Pritchard admits, I'm afraid I know more about this disease than I would like to admit. I've been in a hurry for so long, I can't remember when I wasn't. Twenty years ago, I flew to Baton Rouge, Louisiana to lead a youth retreat. The man they sent to pick me up had no trouble finding me, even though he had never met me before, because he had been given the following description. Ray is tall, wears glasses, and he looks like he's in a big hurry. Two decades have passed, and even though I no longer wear glasses, I'm still in a hurry most of the time. I'm not the only one who lives this way. People talk about having their plates too full, about living in the fast lane, about not having enough hours in a day, and running a race even a rat couldn't win. We want to slow down, but we're afraid the world will fall apart if we do. The funny thing is, one day we'll all slow down permanently, and the world will go right on without us. Hurry sickness is especially prevalent among highly motivated, achievement-oriented people. It often sets in around age 30 and gets worse with the passing years. What happens if it's left unchecked? Dr. Ducey mentions many physical ailments, ulcers, high blood pressure, tension headaches, high cholesterol, and lowered resistance to disease. The eventual payoff is a heart attack. What he doesn't mention is just as bad, anxiety, a frustrated spouse, neglected children, a deteriorating spiritual life, and a short temper. You do more, work harder, run faster, and wind up in an early grave. It doesn't seem worth it. And yet, my friends, we still dread having to wait. I too often suffer from the hurry disease. Do you? The spiritual discipline of waiting on the Lord is lost on this generation that is always on the go especially as technological advances like blazing fast internet, entertainment on demand, information and news at my fingertips makes me demand for things now. And anything that makes me have to wait is a waste of my time. And sadly at times that includes God and His plans for me. God is simply too slow for me and my life needs to move on or else I'm going to miss out. What we forget is that God and His purposes and plans for our best are often never in a hurry. It is a lesson we all need to learn. 
a lesson we all need to be constantly reminded of in our instant generation. So we continue our study in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis in our series, When Giants Walk the Earth. And we pick up with Genesis chapter 8 as we study verses 1 to 22. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 8 as we take a look at verses 1 to 22. I read now verses 1 to 5. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the hundred and fifty days, the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. If we remember from our study in chapter 7, it had rained for forty days and forty nights, and the entire world was completely covered by floodwaters for 150 days. Now, in these verses, we're told that at the end of 150 days, the waters started to recede ever so slowly. And the ark finally came to its resting place in the mountains of Ararat, which is in the region of modern-day Turkey. From the first day, the rains fell on the 17th day of month 2, to the waters starting to recede on the 17th day of month 7, and the ark coming to rest you have 150 days or five months. The Jewish calendar has 30 days to a month. The boat was finally at rest. But can you imagine being on a moving boat for five months? And then when it came to rest, I'm sure you'd be thinking to yourself, I can't wait to finally leave this boat and get off. But unfortunately, you aren't able to get off because you can't see what is around you and it's not time for you to get off. Your mind may be thinking, the boat has stopped, but you don't know why you can't get off. It's like the feeling of being on an airplane that has stopped at the gate, and you get up to leave along with everyone else, but no one is moving, and you don't have any information why. You don't know that the jet bridge is unable to attach itself to the plane to let you off. So you just wait and get mad and get frustrated. Similarly, Noah and his family were not able to leave the boat, even if it had stopped. In fact, the Bible tells us in verse 5 that on the first day of the tenth month, they were now able to see the tops of the mountains as the waters continued to recede. It was another 74 days or two and a half months after the boat had come to rest that they were able to see only the tops of the mountains. That means it was now more than 224 days from when it first started to rain to when they were able to see the tops of the mountains again. That's a long time. Seven and a half months of waiting as God's judgment was poured on the earth. Now, some of you may think that's no problem. During the pandemic, I never left my house for over a year. I wasn't bored, anxious, or even in a hurry to get out. But also remember, at that time, there was no internet Netflix, or any sort of entertainment for you to pass the time back then. The eight people on the boat only had each other to keep company and to do the work assigned to them, which was to keep the animals alive. Whatever the case, Noah and his family were still on the boat for about seven and a half months, and still it wasn't time for them to leave the ark. Now look with me at verses 6 to 9. So it came to pass at the end of 40 days 
that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Then he sent out a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. Some have wondered why Noah didn't just go out himself and take a look to see if there was dry land or not. Apparently, God had restricted the view of Noah either because of how the ark had been constructed as per God's instructions or the position of how the ark had rested on the mountains of Ararat, meaning that even though Noah opened his window, he could only see the tops of the mountains. This restricted view of what was below him forced Noah to continue to wait and trust in the Lord. But I can only imagine how maddening it would be not to be able to see what was happening and not knowing when his time in the ark would end. Just imagine how you would respond if you asked how long this movie was, and the answer you received was, it ends when it ends. Or you asked how long this game will last, and the reply is, oh, two hours, maybe four, perhaps eight. It will end when it ends. What if you don't know when certain things end, like this message, a sports game, your employment, your studies, your health issues, this pandemic? What if it just kept going on and on and on and on? Wouldn't it drive you nuts? Many of the psalmists in the Scripture cry out, Oh, how long, O Lord? How long will this last? In life, not knowing when things end, especially when it is a time of suffering and discomfort, often causes us to waver in our faith and causes us to lose our trust in the Lord. However, when we wait, when we don't know when it's going to end, it should instead encourage us to trust God more. Only seeing the tops of the mountains and not knowing if it was safe to go out or not forced Noah to continue trusting in God who had kept them safe until that time. You see, in the gap between the promise and the fulfillment, we too have to learn to trust. As Ben Patterson writes, it isn't easy to wait. It demands persistence when common sense says give up. It says believe when there is no present evidence to back it up. Faith is forged in delay. Character is forged in delay. The forge is the gap between the promise and the fulfillment. As gold is purified and shaped in the white-hot heat of a forge, so we in our faith are purified and shaped in our waiting. The Bible tells us on day 264, since the rain first fell, that Noah sent out a raven and a dove to scout around the area because he couldn't see anything else. Why would these two particular birds be sent out? Well, a raven's use to sailors before navigation tools were invented was based on its line of flight. By noting the direction the raven chooses in sustained flight, a sailor may determine where land is located. Perhaps this is why it was sent out first. But a raven lives on the carcasses of dead things, and with all the dead carcasses floating around, would therefore have sufficient food available without needing to return back to the boat. Perhaps this is why the raven did not return back to the boat. On the other hand, the dove has a limited ability for sustained flight. Thus, sailors and navigators also use them to determine the location of lands. As long as they return, 
it meant that no land was in close range, which is what verse 9 says, because the waters still covered the earth and made it uninhabitable. But what you have now is two conflicting pieces of evidence. The raven didn't come back, but the dove came back. So was there inhabitable land or not? It's interesting that while Noah used what he knew to try to ascertain whether he should wait in the ark or not, as we will see later, it wouldn't be until he had specific instructions from God to leave the boat that he actually does. In the absence of clear direction, Noah continued to wait, a good principle for us to learn. Noah sending out these two birds show us that in our waiting, it doesn't mean we don't do anything and just sit there. We should be researching and planning and gathering the best information to help us in our God-directed decisions. Similar to how Noah trusted God, but he still sent out the dove and the raven to get the facts on the ground to see if there was any conclusive evidence that would help him discern God's plans. I'm reminded of a story of a farm boy named Willis who accidentally overturned his wagon load full of corn on the road. The farmer who lived nearby came to investigate. Hey, Willis, he called out, forget your troubles for a spell and come in and have dinner with us. Then I'll help you get the wagon back up. That's mighty nice of you, Willis answered, but I don't think Pa would like me to do so. Oh, come on, son, the farmer insisted. Fixing the wagon can wait. Well, okay, the boy finally agreed, but Pa won't like it. After a hearty dinner, Willis thanked his host. I feel a lot better now, but I just know Pa is going to be real upset. Don't be foolish, exclaimed the neighbor. I'm sure he would have been happy with you coming to have dinner with me. By the way, where is your dad? Sir, he replied, he's under the wagon. I told you Pa wouldn't like it. There are times we need to wait, and there are times we need to act. But remember that our actions should not rush ahead of the plans of God just to confirm His leading. Noah did not get out of the ark when the ark rested. Noah did not get out of the ark when he saw the mountaintops. Noah did not get out of the ark when there was conflicting evidence with the dove returning and the raven not returning. Noah would only move when God specifically instructed him to do so. And until that instruction came, he simply waited. God knew that even though the waters had started to recede, the earth was not yet dry enough for Noah and his family to venture out and start a new life. What patience Noah showed while he waited, especially after almost spending an entire year inside the ark. Now, putting it all together, we have our first biblical principle for waiting. Biblical principle number one. In the absence of God's clear leading, we should not move but simply wait, trusting in God's timing. In the absence of God's clear leading, we should not move, but simply wait, trusting in God's timing. My friends, this principle is so hard to live out because in a world that is moving at lightning speed, we feel as if we will miss out on so much if we are not constantly moving and impulsively making decisions. But many times, we save ourselves a lot of problems and troubles if we simply waited it out. How many times have we acted with impulse without prayerfully discerning a major life decision, only to regret that decision, whether it concerns marriage or changing jobs 
or impulsively buying a house or condo or many other impulsive decisions we make. Again, in the absence of God's clear leading, we should not move but simply wait, trusting in God's timing. John Ortberg writes, How do you feel about waiting? Do you enjoy a nice long wait? I don't like to wait. I don't like it when I have to stand in line at the bank or the post office. I don't like being at a stoplight sitting behind an accelerator-challenged driver when the light turns green. I don't like it when I pull into a gas station and all the pumps are occupied and I have to wait for somebody to pull away. How good are you at waiting? I thought I'd give us a pop quiz. I'm going to walk you through one scenario and ask you to think through how you would respond. And here's a scenario. You've been sitting in the waiting room of your doctor's office for over an hour. How do you respond? A, you're grateful for the chance to catch up on some reading. B, you tell the other patients you have a very highly contagious and fatal disease in an attempt to empty out the waiting room. Or, if you have a little more flair for the dramatic C, you force yourself to hyperventilate to get immediate attention. Now, this scenario is a fairly casual kind of waiting, but we put up with it. However, there are other more serious and difficult kinds of waiting. There's the waiting of a single person to see if God has marriage in store for him or her. There's the waiting of a childless couple who desperately wants to start a family, but day after day, week after week, their prayer goes unanswered. There's the waiting of someone who longs to have work that's meaningful and significant and seems to matter, but it doesn't happen. There's the waiting of a spouse that's trapped in a hurting marriage that seems unable to change. Lewis Meads puts it like this, Waiting is our destiny. As creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for, we wait in the darkness for a flame we cannot light. We wait in fear for a happy ending that we cannot write. We wait for a not yet that feels like a not ever. Waiting is the hardest work of hope. When we turn to the Bible, God Himself, God, who is all-powerful, all-wise, and all-loving, assures us over and over to wait. In fact, Psalm 37, verse 7 reminds us, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Wait for the Lord. The psalmist goes on, Keep on His way, and He will exalt you to inherit the land. And so, my friends, we wait, trusting in God's timing for when He will provide clear leading. I read now verses 10 and 11. And he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth, and no one knew that the waters had receded from the earth. The Bible tells us seven more days after he first sent out the raven and the dove, or day 271 since the rain started, Noah sent out another dove. This time the dove returned and brought back an olive leaf. What an encouragement this must have been for Noah and the people on board the ark that God had not forgotten them. You see, even in our times of waiting, the Lord sends hope and encouragement to let us know that He's still in control, that He hasn't forgotten about us, and has a perfect timing for when what we're going through will be over. Because even in our waiting, God is there, encouraging us through the waiting process. Look at verse 12. So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him anymore. After another seven days, 
Noah sent out a third dove, and this time it did not return, meaning the dove had found dry land to rest, perhaps giving the aid on the ark hope that the time to leave the ark would be soon. However, it was still not yet time to leave. You know, these seven-day intervals, while seemingly short, would seem like an eternity, especially if you have been on the boat for so long and if you are anticipating getting off soon. You and I know the feeling of impatience. If we are really looking forward to something next week, those seven days can be the longest days you've ever experienced. Think of a show that ends with a cliffhanger, which would be resolved in next week's episode. Next week couldn't come soon enough. That's why I don't watch shows on Netflix or Disney Plus unless all the shows and episodes have already been released because I'm simply too impatient to wait until the next week for a new episode to drop. While Noah was waiting to get off the ark, it wasn't as if he received no feedback and encouragement from God. Those two doves, one which came back with an olive leaf and the other that did not return, would serve to bolster the faith of Noah and his family. My friends, when we wait, the feedback and encouragement we receive from God comes from the Bible, God's Word. His words of promise, affirmation, and revelation of who He is would serve to strengthen our faith and encourage us while we wait. Author Debbie McComer believes in giving God something to work with so God can renew her strength while she waits. She has a dedicated spiritual routine which she believes makes it easier for God to reach her and for her to reach out to God. Her routine starts with mornings dedicated to spiritual growth, especially prayer journaling. She has a dedicated prayer time. My kids all knew it when they were growing up, she said. They'd call out to her before heading off to school and say things like, Mom, I've got a big test today. And they knew that she was praying for them. She still prays for her kids and her grandchildren, but she accompanies the prayer with lots of inspirational help. She reads the Bible and, of course, is currently doing a Bible study. She has three journals. One is for her prayers, written out longhand, not typed. One is her gratitude journal, five things every day for which to thank God. The last is her personal journal. Every year, Debbie picks a word for the year, something to focus on. This year, she says, there have actually been two words. The first was magnify, the second vision. By getting into the Word, she says, I look to magnify the Lord. But then there's also vision, seeing how the Lord is showing Himself. She also does something very practical. If I get an email from someone or a text asking for prayer, I do it right away. I don't want to forget. There is no need to wait. With that array of spiritual practices, it's easier for God to speak to her and to renew her strength while she waits. My friends, what are you doing while you are waiting to receive encouragement from God and strengthen your faith? I hope that in our waiting, we fill our time with prayer and the study of God's Word. I read now verse 13. And it came to pass in the 600th and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. Now if you're counting the days... It was 90 days since Noah saw the tops of the mountains, 314 days since the first day of the flooding rains, and 36 days since the last dove was sent out and never returned, that presumably with the Lord's specific instruction, Noah finally removed the covering from the ark, and with this new vantage point, 
he saw that the ground was now dry. But guess what? It was still not God's timing for them to get off the boat. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was Noah, I would have jumped off the boat right there and then seeing the dry land. But Noah patiently waited because he had learned not to move ahead of God. It was still not yet time to leave the ark, even though he saw with his own eyes that the land was dry. Perhaps there were things he could not see with his naked eyes. The fact that the land was not yet completely dry, it was still uninhabitable. It would have been unsafe for Noah and his family to leave the ark, as presumably bacteria and other waterborne diseases may still be present. But yet we still wonder, Lord, why so long? Have we ever thought about the reality that because it took such a long time and energy to build the ark that no one his family needed to take a year-long break to refresh physically, spiritually, and emotionally, to have the energy and mental strength to then restart life on earth? How often do we wish for a year-long break just to recharge ourselves? So perhaps this is another practical reason for why God put them in the ark for so long. Now, how is Noah this patient with the Lord? How is someone able to endure waiting for so long and even accepting the waiting process without getting frustrated, angry, or impatient? I believe this sort of God-given patience comes only when a person understands that the process of waiting is for our good and that the wait itself will yield a result that is for our benefit, blessing, and protection. And as a man of faith, Noah believed this to be true. So, my friends, do we consider our waiting as a blessing from God, which will bring about a result that is for our good and for our benefit and protection? Because if so, that would radically change our perspective as it relates to waiting. I'm sure many of us aren't comfortable with waiting because we feel like it's pointless, or worse, that we are missing out on key opportunities as we wait. But we need to turn that thinking upside down. We need to realize that our waiting on the Lord's timing will bring about the best, most wonderful opportunities for us. Waiting isn't pointless because it is for our benefit. We just have to trust God through the process. Here's our second biblical principle, biblical principle number two. Waiting for God's perfect timing by faith is for our good because blessings and protection come to those who wait. Waiting for God's perfect timing by faith is for our good because blessings and protection come to those who wait. Spiritually, we know from the Scriptures that waiting patiently on the Lord matures us, strengthens us, and encourages us to trust that the God who journeys with us will bring about something beautiful through the process of waiting for our benefit, blessings, and protection. God doesn't make us wait to make our lives miserable or for unreasonable purposes. He does so for our own good. And if we can understand this truth, then the process of waiting will be more bearable. Pray that God will give each of us the patience and perseverance to wait on Him regardless if we understand why He's making us wait or not. Perhaps our prayer should be, Lord, teach me to wait. Help me to accept and understand that waiting is for my good, even if I can't see how. That should be our prayer instead of, Lord, give me what I want now. Rick Ezel reminds us, no one likes to wait, but we wait in traffic, in carpools, in holding patterns, in grocery stores, for the foursome ahead of us on the golf course, for the doctor, for a spouse, 
for a baby, for retirement, for sermons to get over, or for Jesus to return. Waiting is not just something we have to do while we get what we want. Waiting is the process of becoming what God wants us to be. What God does in us while we wait is as important as what we are waiting for. Let me repeat that. What God does in us while we wait is as important as what we are waiting for. Waiting, biblical waiting, is not a passive waiting around for something to happen that will allow us to escape our troubles. Waiting does not mean doing nothing. It is not fatalistic resignation. It is not a way to evade unpleasant reality. Those who wait are those who work because they know their work is not in vain. The farmer can wait all summer for his harvest because he knows he has done his work of sowing the seed and watering the plants. Those who wait on God can go about their assigned tasks confident that God will provide the meaning and conclusion to their lives and the harvest to their toil. Waiting is the confident, disciplined, expectant, active, and sometimes painful clinging to God. It knows that we will reap a reward. My friends, learn the lesson now that waiting will reap rewards for us because the loving God only desires for our good. Therefore, if He wants us to wait, it is for our good. Look with me as I read verses 14 and 19. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. The Bible tells us from the time Noah removed the covering of the ark and saw the dry land to when he was finally instructed by God to leave the ark was 56 more days or about two months. With all of this waiting by now, Noah learned the lesson of not moving unless there was a clear instruction or clear leading from God. For the God who safely brought him and his family into the ark for protection and salvation would be the same God who led them out safely. So it was on day 370 since the rain first fell, 56 days after he saw that the land was dry, more than a year since they entered the ark at the age of 600 years old for Noah, now at 601, Noah, his family, and all the animals on board left the ark. Everything that went in alive came out alive, all because Noah patiently waited upon the Lord. Now notice what was the first thing Noah did when he left the ark. I read now verses 20 to 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. In these verses, we see that Noah gave an offering to the Lord from the clean animals and birds he had brought into the ark. This offering was a way of saying thank you to God for protecting him and his family, and for God leading them out of the ark in His perfect timing. 
And the Bible says God was pleased with the offering of Noah, for it was a pleasing smell to him. Here's our simple but important third biblical principle. Biblical principle number three. Remember to thank God for the waiting we go through as much as we thank Him when the wait is over. Remember to thank God for the waiting we go through as much as we thank Him when the wait is over. That's often what we forget because when we get what we want, we naturally only thank God for finally getting what we prayed for. But we almost always forget to thank God for the period of waiting we go through and all of the learnings, lessons, blessings, protections, and benefits that the waiting has brought us. This act of thanksgiving will solidify in our hearts and minds that the process and journey is just as important as the results. Remember, what God does in us while we wait is as important as what we are waiting for. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, the Apostle Peter writes these words about God's timing and His patience. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In a story one day, an economist read these verses and was quite amazed and talked to God about it. He said, Lord, is it true that a thousand years for us is just like one minute to you? The Lord said, yes. The economist said, well then, a million dollars to us must be like one penny to you. The Lord said, well, yes. The economist then said, well, Lord, will you give me one of those pennies? The Lord said, all right, I will. Wait here one minute. Todd Turner writes, often we want God's resources but we don't want His timing. We want the penny, but not the minute. We want His hand, but we don't want His calendar. We forget His work in us while we wait, which is as important as what you're waiting for. Waiting means I must trust that God knows what He's doing. Maybe you're single. We live in a society where often the assumption is that married is normal and singleness is not. You feel the pain of that stigma. Maybe you feel a legitimate longing for intimacy. Waiting is so hard, and maybe there's a relationship at your fingertips that promises to take that loneliness away. But you know that relationship is not honoring to God. Maybe you know in your heart that that is not the right person. Maybe this person does not share your ultimate commitment to God. Maybe this person is putting pressure on you to be involved sexually even though you're not married. But because of the pain, you're tempted to think, I've been waiting long enough. I'm going to reach out for whatever satisfaction I can get in this life and worry about the consequences later. But wait and remember to thank God for the wait, because through the wait, He gives us His best. When we remember to thank Him for the waiting, just as you would thank Him when the wait is over, it will sear this biblical principle in our hearts. As Ashley Hale recounts, when the global coronavirus pandemic began in the spring of 2020, life stopped overwhelmed by the threat of a disease we couldn't stop and for which we didn't have the hospital capacity and without vaccines then, everyone moved work and school into their homes. We were told our children would be back in school in three weeks. By then, we'd flatten the curve and life would go back to normal. But as the months passed, as children did not return to in-person classrooms in the fall, 
the waiting for quote-unquote normal to return seem like riding a roller coaster of depression, anxiety, fear, and listlessness. We could only wait. There's a type of waiting where you remain walled off. You distract or numb yourself to move through time faster. You turn in on yourself. You fill up with salty chips, Netflix binging, online political debate, or conjuring up imaginative vacation plans, anything to take you away from your own lack of control, your own unknowing. But there's another type of waiting where you lean into the pain to more deeply experience a peace that passes understanding. This is the sort of waiting we see Jesus do, leading into His identity as a beloved Son, feeding on the Word of God so that it nourishes His very body. This is the deep work of waiting. And while it feels barren, it strips us of our comforts so that we can see what we're actually feeding on. It's a gift to feel our hunger pains and as children to expect God will feed us. The lessons of the wait remind us who or what it is we trust that will get us through the wait. Is it salty chips and Netflix? Or is it on God and His Word? So what are you waiting for? And as you are waiting, are you waiting well? As we wait for certain things in life, remember, number one, in the absence of God's clear leading, we should not move but simply wait, trusting in God's timing. Number two, waiting for God's perfect timing by faith is for our good because blessings and protection come to those who wait. Number three, Remember to thank God for the waiting we go through as much as we thank Him when the wait is over. Let me end with this story. In a dream, God told the man to go outside and push against a huge boulder in his front yard. So every morning for the next few weeks, the man went outside and strained against the rock. He pushed and groaned and prodded and shoved, but the rock never budged. Finally, in a fit of exasperation, the man fell to his knees and lifted his eyes to heaven. What were you thinking, Lord, he cried, wiping sweat from his brow. You told me to push this rock, and I've been pushing it for weeks, yet it has not moved an inch. A voice from heaven rumbled among the clouds and whispered in the man's ear. I told you to push the stone, God said. I didn't tell you to move it. I'm the only one who can move it, and when you're ready, I will. By the way, look at your hands. The man looked at his hands. They had grown calloused and tough with the work, and his arms bulged with muscles. Though his efforts seemed fruitless, he had grown strong, and now he was beginning to grow wise. All the waiting we do in life, my friends, is it producing a better, more Christ-like you? I hope it is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these lessons about waiting. It is so difficult for me, and I'm sure for many others in this instant generation, to wait upon you. Lord, help us to learn to wait, knowing that it is for our best, it is for our good, and that you are teaching us spiritual lessons which we are to learn so that we will mature to be more Christ-like. I pray that we will never run ahead of you, that we will always follow in lockstep with you, and that we don't move unless you clearly lead. And so, Lord, as we learn this lesson of what it means to wait upon you, may we do so with joy, knowing that as we wait, it is for our good, and at the very end, it will be for our best. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.